0: Still immersed in the book of Daniel. Last time we did chapter 7, and I had a memory stall on the dissolution of the Greek Empire under Alexander. All I could remember was Ptolemy and Seleucus, and I could not remember Cassander and Lysimachus. So if you look on the map that I've got projected up here, after Alexander's death, his empire was divided among four of his generals. The area that's a sort of a mustard yellow color was under Seleucus, and typically in the Bible it's referred to as Syria, because there's Damascus. This gray area here is desert, so it encompasses Syria and part of Asia and all the way over to the Indus River in India. So those are the Seleucids that inherit that chunk of Alexander's land. Ptolemy, Got Egypt down here and this chunk here of Asia Minor. For example, Tarsus would be in the area that was under Ptolemaic control. And one of the things that will happen as we go through the book of Daniel is there will be extremely detailed renditions of the interaction primarily between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies because Israel is the bridge between those two kingdoms. And so they are forever fighting back and forth over Israel. So from the Bible's point of view in the book of Daniel, those are the two important remnants of Alexander's empire. Cassander is in Macedonia, and that's this green area here. And then you have Lysimachus in Thrace, and then this part of northwestern Turkey, modern Turkey. So that's the way Alexander's empire was divided up. And it'll be good to know because, as I say, we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Daniel going over the back and forth between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. That process started back in Daniel 7 as Alexander's empire was broken up. At the beginning of chapter 7, we had a time marker, which is in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. The vision of Daniel 7 is in the first year of Belshazzar. The vision of Daniel 8 is going to be in the third year of Belshazzar. And I said last time, and you may even remember, one of the things about dreams is they are very vivid at the time, and you wake up in the morning and think you're going to remember it because it was so vivid, and by 10 o'clock in the morning it's gone, unless you write it down. And so Daniel was so moved by these visions that he did write them down and i may have said this back when we were dealing in daniel chapter 2 where nebuchadnezzar had his dream of the statue made out of four metals and you remember the deal with nebuchadnezzar was he grabbed his advisors and said tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation and of course they all went into a stuttering stall because They said, nobody's going to be able to tell you the dream. I have a suspicion that the reason that Nebuchadnezzar approached it that way is because he himself didn't remember the dream. Because, as I said, you can have a really intense dream, wake up and be very disturbed with your dream, and by 10 o'clock in the morning, unless you've written it down, you may not be able to remember it. So there's sort of two perspectives on Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to that dream. Reaction number one is he didn't himself remember it, But he knew he was really disturbed and needed it interpreted. Or number two, as we talked about at that time, he was a new king and was interested in checking out the qualifications of his advisors. Either one works. Neither one is biblical. So do with that whatever seems good to you. One other thing, by way of background, the first six chapters of the book of Daniel are historical. They lay out the entire life and career of Daniel so in chapter 6 we had the handwriting on the wall and all that kind of stuff now the series of prophecies that begin in chapter 7 go back to earlier places in his life they weren't mentioned as we went through the historical parts by the end of chapter 6 the Babylonians are gone they've been conquered by the Medes and the Persians so now we go back then to before they were conquered early in Belshazzar's reign and he's then recording the, the visions. so he didn't record the visions at the time in the historical stream he's now recording them in a wad at the end starting in chapter seven so now we're chapter eight in the third year of the reign of king belshazzar a vision appeared to me daniel after that which appeared to me at the first so here he's referring back to the vision that he had two years ago and i saw in the vision and when i saw i was in susa the capital which is in the province of Elam. And Susa is in this range of mountains here. This area here is modern-day Iraq. This area here is modern-day Iran. And the mountains that range between them were used as summer government headquarters because down in the valley in Babylon, in that part of the world, it gets hot and muggy. So what would happen is the nobility would move up to Shushan or Susa because it was up in the mountains and it was nice and cool and pleasant and so forth. So the fact that he's in Susa is perfectly in keeping with his role as a government advisor. And I saw the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great." You remember in the previous vision we had a bear, and the bear was laying off on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. And standard explanation of that is the bear is medieval persia and it's on one side because one side is stronger than the other. Here you have the ram, which got two horns, but one is higher than the other, and the higher one came up second. So the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians came up second, and the Persians wound up absorbing the Medes. This will be explained in just a minute in Scripture itself. And then, of course, the ram is going to be Greece, and we'll talk about that in a minute. One of the things that I'm reading somewhere, and I have not checked this out, so it may not be true, but it's interesting. Every culture has its own zodiac, and one of the things that is true is they all have the same figures in their zodiac with the same set of stars. So they all have the hunter, Orion, and they all have the swan and so forth. Each culture names its constellation something different. We call it the Big Dipper. It's also Ursa Major, which is the great bear. So different cultures have named them different things, but they all pick the same sequence of stars as their constellation. This note that I read somewhere indicated that the Zodiac is not the right word. In Hebrew, it's a matsura. I We use Zodiac simply for convenience. But in the Persian or the Babylonian, I don't remember which Zodiac, one of those two, Persia was a ram and Greece was a goat. Do with that whatever you want. Again, remember, astrology has always been a big deal. It is still a big deal. Bigger then than perhaps now, but you still have people that make lots of money reading the stars and casting fortunes and finding out when you were born and when you should marry and all that kind of stuff. So it has not gone away. The principal difference was in these cultures at this time, biblically, kings would have people on their staff whose sole job it was to pay attention to that stuff. So I'm all the way to verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth, without touching the ground and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram. He was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down on the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. It's going to be explained here in just a minute, but obviously this is Greece under Alexander. The horn in the middle of its forehead is Alexander himself, and then Alexander dies, and his kingdom, as we started off with, is then divided up into four chunks. One of the things about... The Greeks, as many of you know, they would fight naked and they moved fairly quickly. Their principal military formation was a phalanx. It's a block of men with long spears. And the spears, I think, were often as long as 18 feet. Get into a square and they'd put the spears down, and coming against them was fairly difficult. And in fact, the first empire that was able to defeat the phalanx were the Romans with their legions. And the legion is again a different military formation. Not dissimilar but different. And by the way, the 19th century version of that is the British Square. During the time of musketry, the British developed a square. And the nice thing about a square is it's on four sides so you didn't have a back and a front. And they would have muskets with bayonets has anybody seen the movie Zulu? Oh, you really should. Oh, it's excellent. Put it on your Netflix list, Zulu. It's about the Battle of Rorke's Drift, where a British from the size of, it, I think it was a company, stood off a couple of thousand Zulu warriors and walked away from it. And the formation that they had was the square. In this case, they were in a compound, so it wasn't quite a square. But what they would have is ranks first rank would fire in unison, then they would kneel down. Then the rank behind them would fire over the top of their heads while the rank in front was reloading. Then that rank would kneel down, and depending on how many ranks you had, you had this rotating, one rank is reloading, one rank is moving, the other rank is firing, and it's like a machine gun. That was the formation they used against Napoleon, and that was the formation they used at Waterloo. So anyway, the phalanx was the Greek version of that formation, where since they didn't have firearms, what they had are these long spears, and they would get down and ground the spears and lay them out and invite people to come and attack them, because it was a very difficult thing to do. The Roman legion was a different formation. They had what's called the gladius, which is a short sword about that long which isn't even necessarily sharp. And what you had in the Roman legion was a shield wall. And they had these semicircular shields that covered from your knee up to your head. And the ranks would stand shoulder to shoulder and move forward behind this shield and then jab out from between them with their short sword as they closed with the enemy, basically a tank. So the Greek phalanx was able to defeat the Persian army because it was a new formation, something they hadn't seen. And it was very fast, it moves very quickly. The legion was able to defeat the phalanx so on, all infantry tactics. But the point here is the phalanx, since they fought naked and all they had was their spear, they could move very quickly and they were very maneuverable and they were able to change directions and so forth. And they just went through everybody until they finally got to India. And I think the only reason they quit when they went to India is they ran out of gas. Tired of it because Alexander himself is reputed to have cried, Is there nothing left to conquer? In other words, I've conquered everything. And at that point, he essentially died, and what he had conquered was then broken up among his generals according to the map on the wall. I didn't mean to go into all that, but what the heck. Off we go. So we're all the way to verse 9. So out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now, This is the second time we've had a little horn. I am of the opinion this is a different little horn than the little horn that we had back in Chapter 7. Because remember, that little horn comes out of the fourth beast. You have ten kingdoms in the fourth beast, and three of them are plucked up, and the little horn takes their place. And we speculated at what the little horn might be, and it can be anything from the Vatican all the way up to Islam. Don't know what it is. This one comes out of the Greek empire. It does not come out of the fourth empire. So this little horn is different. Verse 9 again. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So this, at least as I see it, is probably Antiochus Epiphanes, who comes out of the Seleucid Empire, and they have a succession of kings. One line, if you will, is Antiochus, and there's several Antiochus. And the last one calls himself Epiphanes, the one who's coming, and he's the one that outlaws Torah study. Uh, He's the one who was rebelled against by the Maccabees, so he's the one that's the subject of the book of the Maccabees. And notice it says that he was great toward the south, toward the east and toward the Glorious Land. Of course the Glorious Land is obviously Israel here, so toward the south the Seleucids and the Ptolemies have a 200-year running gun battle. Sometimes one of them is ahead, sometimes the other one's ahead. And they're fighting back and forth mostly to see who controls Israel because of course Israel is the major land bridge between Africa and Europe. So the control of that Represents considerable wealth. So the Ptolemies and the Seleucids squabble back and forth for a long time about it. And from the perspective of Daniel, it's the events of the Maccabees that are interesting. He doesn't particularly care about the squabbles of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies except as it affects Israel. And the description of the little horn here fits Antiochus Epiphanes. So, verse 10. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of the sanctuary was overthrown. Well, of course, that's all stuff that Antiochus did. Remember, he forbade the sacrifices, he forbade the study of uh, Torah. He desecrated the temple by putting up a statue of Zeus and offering a pig on the altar. Verse 10 again, it grew great even to the host of heaven. That can mean a couple of things. It can mean Israel. Remember we had earlier wearing out the saints, and it would be, from Daniel's perspective, Israel. So the host of heaven could be Israel. It could also be angels. The battle going on here is not just earthly and temporal. It is also celestial. So verse 12. And a host will be given over to it together and a regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. The explanation I have heard of that is that the truth in this case is the Torah. Because one of the things that Antiochus did when he took over and imposed his rule on Israel is he forbade under penalty of death the possession of a Torah scroll. So I interpret the truth being thrown to the ground as the forbidding of Torah study. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So first off, you got two beings talking. One of them turns out to be Gabriel. and In Christian theology, most people regard the speaker who is giving orders to Gabriel as being Yeshua. I'm perfectly fine with that. Scripture doesn't say so, but that's sort of typical Christian understanding of who the one giving the instructions to Gabriel is. It's Gabriel who announces the coming of the Messiah. He's the one that makes the Annunciation to Mary and so forth. As somebody I once listened to said, the only two angels that are named in the canon are Gabriel and Michael. In Jewish literature there are some other ones, but they're not in the canon of Scripture. And Gabriel's job seems to be making announcements with respect to the Messiah, and Michael's job seems to be commander of the Lord's host fighting for Israel. So, 2300 evenings and mornings. A couple of possible explanations as to what that means. Notice how I said that. Possible explanations as to what that means. Possible explanation number one. Since we are talking in terms of sacrifices, there is a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Two sacrifices each day. So 2300 evenings and mornings could refer then to 1150 days, which is a little bit over three years. So that's interpretation number one. Interpretation number two is that it is 2,300 days, and the guy that has that particular interpretation is a fairly modern scholar by the name of C. L. Seow. And what he says is it is the interval between the assassination of Anias the third, who was the high priest in 171. BC until the rededication in 164 and you notice if you go from 171 to 164 you've got seven years so his theory is from the assassination of Ananias to the dedication of the temple which is about seven years it could also be from the desecration of the temple until its restoration which is actually about three and a half years so it doesn't exactly work for anything You now know as much about it as I do. Depends on what you think 2300 is. You are saying it's years. Fine. I'm not arguing with you at all. It can also be 1150 days if you're talking two sacrifices per day. And that comes out to about 3.1 years if you divide either 360 or 365. And similarly, if you... Say the 2300 is just days and divide by 365 or 360, you get about seven years. And that's why I say different people have come up with different interpretations of what this means. I don't personally know. One of the things we'll get to in Daniel 9 is from the Declaration to Rebuild and and all that kind of stuff. And Bollinger, I think, works that out. So that you wind up at the birth of Christ and so forth. And we'll go through that when we get there. I don't know about 2300. Certainly you can look at the events that are taking place here in Daniel are 500 B.C. So this is during Daniel's lifetime. So it would have been somewhere around 500 B.C. When Daniel is having these visions because he's an old man at that time. He was taken by Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar put Israel under tribute. She was taken before Jerusalem was destroyed. On Nebuchadnezzar's first trip to Israel, not his second trip. Second trip, he destroyed the place. First trip, he took hostages, which include Daniel. So that leaves 85 years, if you will, between the time Jerusalem is destroyed and the fifth century BC. So Daniel's prophecy is starting some 500 years BC. The events of the Maccabees, which is the other marker, is about the end of the second century BC. So people are all over the board what they think 2300 means, and I don't know. And if somebody has got a really good mathematical proof, those are always fun. Please bring it in and share it and we'll go through it. I'm not hostile to any of that. I don't mean to sound like I'm hostile, I'm not. I think it's great fun to study those things. I just don't happen to know one about this. So 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel. Make this man understand the vision. So this is where most Christians believe that the man giving Gabriel the orders is Yeshua. And just... By way of reference, back in Daniel 7, we had the vision of the throne of God, and we had the Ancient of Days who sat on the throne and made the judgment. So Daniel has no problem having visions of God himself. This is not God himself. This is a man. Which, if he is divine, it would indicate Yeshua. So verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man that the vision is for the time of the end. So now we have another time, marker. What I've been talking about as we go through is this matches the time of the Maccabees. But he says it's also for the time of the end, which I am assuming is beyond the time of the Maccabees. I'm, in fact, assuming it's beyond where we are now. The other thing, the signature event when a human is presented with an angelic being as he goes down like a sack of rocks. And that's what Daniel does here. John does the same thing when the angel talks to him in Revelation. It happens all over scripture that your knees turn to water and you go down when one of these beings speaks to you. Verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. The goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, wonder who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for refers to many days from now here the time gets ambiguous and one of the standard interpretations of this is there are multiple fulfillments in other words you have a partial fulfillment of it during the time of Antiochus who by the way died without human hands belly swelled up and burst and he had worms and all sorts of stuff it was Kind of a gruesome death. He was not killed in battle. He was not assassinated. He simply got very sick and died. So, all of this certainly fits Antiochus. And in verse 24, he shall see in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. From Daniel's perspective, the people who are the saints is Israel. So this fits. If you want to move it forward to the church, it also fits. And it fits in what we call the Antichrist, or the one who holds himself up in the place of Christ. That's what Antichrist means, not against Christ, but in place of Christ. He's also against Christ, but that's not what the word means. So as I say, the Pope is called Antichrist, but it's in place of Christ. It's sort of like the rabbis, where they say the Torah is not in heaven, but it's down here. Sort of the standard rabbinic thing is we get to make halakhic rulings because... The Torah has been given to us, and it's down here, it's not in heaven. Well, the Pope is the heir to that tradition. Hence, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which is from the chair, he is speaking in the place of Christ, and his pronouncements then have the force of Scripture. So when they changed worship from Shabbat to Sunday, you'd find any Catholic priest or theologian worth his salt. There's no authority for that in Scripture whatsoever. The Pope did it on his own authority because he is in the place of Christ while Christ is not here. That's what their theology says. There's a rabbinic story that many of you have heard. A group of rabbis was arguing literally about whether or not a stove was kosher, whether it could still be used or had to be broken up and destroyed. And one guy said... It's not kosher, and the rest of them said it is. And the guy that says it's not says, Well, if I'm wrong, let that stream flow uphill. And the stream turns around and flows uphill. And the rabbi said, We don't listen to streams. He said, Well, if I'm right, let the walls collapse. And the walls start to lean forward, and, and the other rabbi said, Stop. And the walls stop halfway. And they said, We don't listen to walls. And he says, If I'm right, let a voice from heaven. And a voice from heaven comes and says, This rabbi's right. We don't listen to voices from heaven. The Torah is on earth. We're the ones who are interpreted, and our interpretation is the stove is kosher. In the end, in Revelation, there's going to be the false prophet and the Antichrist. And what the false prophet is going to do is he's going to convince everybody that the Antichrist is really Christ. That's his job. And then verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. So as we said at the beginning of this, Daniel is still doing stuff in the kingdom, even though it is the third year of Belshazzar's reign. It didn't clear just exactly what he's doing, but he continues to be a high-powered government official, as is the case if he was in Sushan for the summer and so forth.